to the We Are NTC podcast, a production of NTC Australia and New Zealand. My name is Joseph Wood, and I'm the Dean of Students at NTC and your host for the podcast. Recently, we held our annual Spiritual Deepening Weekend at the All Nations Church of the Nazarene in Auckland, New Zealand. Joining those in person at the church was a small group who gathered in the Brisbane campus chapel and several people joined us online. Our speaker this year was the Reverend Roland Hearn, Field Strategy Coordinator in the Church of the Nazarene for Australia and New Zealand. Focusing on the first letter of John, Roland explored what he called the heart of holiness. Over three evenings, this theme was unpacked and shared with those in attendance. Through the grace of technology, we were able to record these sermons to share with you. This current episode features the first evening, which Roland titled, Darkness and Desire. As always, we pray God's blessing on you as you listen. I would like to read a scripture this evening that will become the foundation for, um, for our weekend together. And I would like to invite those that are here to stand, those that are NTC, you may also stand if you would like. Um, if you don't want to, that's fine. If you're at your home, you might find that a bit, a bit uncomfortable, but, but uh, suit yourself. Let's stand together for the reading uh, from uh, 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to start with the verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, then God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete amongst us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Let us pray. A loving, gracious, heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of hearing your word this evening. We do ask that you would speak to us. We know that you desire to draw us ever closer to yourself. And we do pray that um, as we spend time in your word together, that, that uh, this would become our reality. Lord Jesus, would you uh, speak through my words they are not very significant, but we do know that you can, in times like this, speak to the deepest part of our being and call us into an ever-deepening relationship with you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you, would, that you would presence yourself amongst us wherever we are and wherever we're hearing uh, these words this evening, that you might call us to the reality of being like you in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I remember very clearly when I was young, 
um, having a group of boys that um, we hang out, hung out with from our neighbourhood. There was a couple of um, guys in the house next door, next door, a couple over the road, a couple um, behind us, and and others from around the neighbourhood. And we would we would do lots of things together. One of our most favourite activities was walking down the hill from our street down into there was a creek that would would run down there. And uh, particularly when it was flooding, we would all love to jump in that creek and ride the ride the creek down th- over the rocks down to the great big drain pipes that it ran into. When I think back. Um, upon those upon those experiences and and given people's sensitivity to such things these days, um, I am absolutely certain that uh, that uh, that activity would be frowned upon um, by any parent uh, in in uh, at this point. But uh, we used to do that. We used to love playing in that creek, and and we hung out as a group together. We did lots lots and lots of things together. But as we grew uh, a little older. Something began to happen within the dynamics of our groups. Some of the boys in the group began to get scooters. Scooters with those great big rubber pneumatic tyres on them. We all had little bash around scooters prior to that, which uh, which were you know just had those little hard tyres. But um, at this point in time in the in our lives, numbers of these young young boys got these scooters that had these great big. Um, pneumatic tires and and streamers from the handlebars and when we go down that hill they would race down that hill so fast that if you didn't have a bike like that you just couldn't keep up with them and i remember because we were poor and and uh, and didn't have a lot of things in our life I could only dream of having such a, a scooter and, and uh, I would always, my brother and I, we would always be left behind when they would ride off on their, on their scooters and we'd run and we'd finally catch up to them. But I remember feeling so sad and so disappointed. I wanted a scooter just like those boys had so that I could feel like I was a part of the group and that I belonged and, and that it was that, that uh, I, I fit in. As long as I, I wasn't able to keep up, it seemed to me that I did not fit in well one Christmas as Christmas came close I started begging my parents for for one of those scooters and and uh, and um, I'm sure that they that they with much pain um, managed to get together what they needed to buy that scooter because um, on Christmas morning I came out out to the living room and here was, here was this scooter with those great big pneumatic tires and the and the streamers off the handlebars I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen I, I didn't want to open any other presents I grabbed that scooter and raced outside and down onto the street to show up for everyone that I was now a part of the group and as I looked around out of each house came these boys and they all had dragster bicycles. You guys don't even know what a dragster bicycle is. You younger ones, you older people do, don't you? You've got the great big handlebars like this and a little gear shift right here, three-speed gear fish shift handlebars up here. If you had one of those, you know what I'm talking about, don't you, Tao? If, if, uh, if you had one of those bicycles, you were just the coolest thing on earth. And here I am with my, with my bicycle, that, my scooter that I had wanted so very much, so very much. And I looked at that and I looked at those bicycles and I thought, oh, this is a piece of rubbish. I have a terrible scooter and they have bicycles. In fact, they have dragster bicycles, the banana seats and the little bar at the back and the clicky things on the wheels. You when, you're, when you're riding along, oh, I was so jealous. I just wanted a bicycle like that so I could fit in and be like them. 
And so time went on and everywhere they went, I was on my scooter trying to keep up with them and they were riding their dress and are changing gears to make it even worse. You know, I'd be, we'd be going uphill and I'd be dropping further and further back and they'd change gears and off they'd go into the distance. And so I just wanted a bicycle like that so much so I could fit in. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like everybody else in my group. They all had these beautiful drags to bicycles. And so as time went on, I pleaded and I begged my parents that they might buy me one of those drags to bicycles for Christmas. Surely they could put together enough money to buy one of those drags to bicycles and then I wouldn't be left out anymore. Then I'd be one of the group and I'd belong and I could fit in and, and I'd be part of, of, uh, of, this, of this group. And eventually the, the day came. Christmas morning I went out and here was this beautiful dragster bike. Streamers out, the, out off the handlebars, the, 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 the um, gear shift here, great big bars like this, big, big bar at the back you could hang things on, banana seat. Oh my goodness, that was just absolutely gorgeous drags to bicycle. And I couldn't wait and I got my, 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 on my bicycle and I raced downstairs and I raced out to the front of my yard ready to go out with my mates and they all came out of their houses in 10-speed roadster bikes. They all, they all got bicycles for Christmas, proper road bikes. I couldn't believe it. They just had all these 10-speed bikes now. They could go as fast as they wanted to and everywhere we went, I got left behind and I still didn't fit in. I wasn't as good as any, everybody else. Have you, ever, have you ever felt those kinds of feelings? Like um, you don't quite fit in? Your life is not as good as somebody else's life, that other people have things the way they were? In fact, when I tell that story, that's exactly how it felt to me. I'm pretty confident looking back on it, it probably wasn't like that at all. Maybe one kid got the, got the, the different bike or one of the things. But in my mind, everybody got better than me and I didn't get what I wanted to have. Let me suggest to you this evening that that experience of wanting to fit in, wanting to be like everybody else, wanting to not uh, miss out, in whatever shape or form it has, is a fairly common experience. It's particularly common amongst young people. We seem to get over it the older we get, although not completely, we just have subtle ways of hiding it. But as a young person, as a teenager, as you're trying to work out who you really are in this world, those kinds of experiences shape us and they cause us to feel like we are valuable or we're, we're not valuable. And pretty regularly we interpret our circumstances to indicate to us that we aren't valuable. That's a fairly normal human activity. In fact, even as, uh, as we get older, the, the circumstances shift and change but as we get older, the, the kind of work we're doing, the kind of stresses we're under, the kind of expectations we are under, um, the kind of sense that life is disappearing can leave us with that sense that, that we don't fit, we don't belong, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we, we, aren't, we aren't good enough, we aren't, um, we aren't a part of what everybody else is a part of. And that is a very real, normal human experience. In fact, I'm very confident that that experience, no matter what shape it takes in each of our lives, and it's different for all of us, no doubt, but that feeling of inadequacy, that feeling of not being good enough, that feeling of not belonging, um, that feeling of being um, left alone, of not being valuable, 
I think as a residue reality of the brokenness of our lives because we're born without relationship with God. And every human being experiences it in one form or another. And if you've ever been in an experience where, uh, where you have been treated harshly over, a, over an extended period of time, that feeling gets worse and worse and worse. And it can affect the way we, uh, we behave, it can affect the way we see the world, it can affect the way we relate to each other. This, I believe, is a product of broken humanity. This scripture that we read this, this evening is going to be the theme for our journey this weekend, particularly the, the uh, passage that says, in this world we are like him. Some uh, translators of that passage are uh, not certain that we're going to actually get who we're talking about. And so some of it actually translate that in this world, we are like Jesus, just so we don't have to guess who we're talking about when we say him. In this world, we are like Jesus. And so John, as he's um, unpacking this gospel, oh, sorry, this letter, is, is fixed on this idea that in this world we are like Jesus. It's a staggering and incredible idea that you and I, with all of our struggles and all of our fears and all of our failures and all of our, our sense of inadequacy and inappropriateness and, and, uh, and uncertainties and, and perhaps abandonment and, and uh, lostness and being alone, all of us with all of those combinations that go to make us up, that in fact, in this world, we can be like Jesus. In what way can we be like Jesus? Well, in this epistle of 1 John, there's a few things that are outstanding as you, as you read your way through it. The foundational idea in 1 John is, the, is this idea that God is love. And that you and I experience God's love, and as a result of experiencing God's love, we love each other. The, the other idea that comes fairly strongly through in this, in this epistle is an idea of sin. This speaks to, to sin quite, uh, quite significantly in this scripture. Let me read you a passage, um, and, and let's unpack it a little bit. This is the message we have heard from him. And declare to you, God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and in truth, and his truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. So here's some very black and white statements about sin. In fact, black and white is a really good way of saying it because John makes this contrast of light and darkness, that when we walk in, we walk with, in God, we walk in the light. If we're not in the light, then we are in darkness. 
And if we're in, in the light, then we love one another. If we're not loving one another, then we are in darkness. And, it, and so um, John creates this, this very, um, these very bold statements about sin and, uh, and, and darkness and God and light. He also says that we can be purified from all sin by the blood of Jesus. And that if we claim we don't need the blood of Jesus because we were without sin, then we're a liar. And the truth isn't in us. So this idea of sin is, is a significant one for us to wrestle with. So this is the beginning of this epistle. We're aiming towards this scripture that says, in this world, we are like Jesus. And to get there, we've got to wrestle with this idea of sin. Let me read another passage for you. This is found in, in chapter 2 and reading from verse 3. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. By the way, in this epistle, John writes consistently about certainty and about knowing things for certain. You'll see that phrase come up quite a lot. That we, This is how we know this. This is how we know that. Well, he says here, we know that we have come to know him if we do his commands. The man, who, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, but if anyone obeys his words, God's love is truly made complete within him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And we see this introduction of this idea of walking as Jesus walked. In this world, we are like him. And he has just said that if, that if we say we ha haven't got any sin, then we're a liar. But, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, his blood purifies us from all sin. And so we have this dynamic understanding of, of, uh, of sin that seems to be uh, very black and white in, in the one sense. But on the other hand, it's a little bit hard to get our head around because it's, it's full of these, these absolutes that... If you walk this way, then you are in purity. If you don't walk this way, then you are a sin, you're a sinner. You aren't supposed to walk in sin, you're supposed to walk in light. And so rather than, than um, uh, suggesting that they, the, the, the life in Christ is one where we dabble a little bit of this and we dabble a little bit of that, when we're in church, then we have the glory of God in us and when we're not in church, then we sin a little bit here and we sin a little bit there. John is saying that there is an absolute distinction between the people of God and, and the idea of sin and that God can in fact deliver us from the power of sin. And so, and he says, it's very, very simple. All we have to do is, every, is do everything that Jesus commands us. And if we're following Jesus, we'll do everything that he commands us. And if we don't do everything he commands us, then we're living in sin. And so just when we started to get excited about this idea that we can, we can live without sin, we all of a sudden see this magnitude. We have to do everything that Jesus said. If we do everything that Jesus said, then we're walking with him. But if we don't do everything we, that, we, that Jesus said, then we're, then we're in the darkness and we're lying. These absolute constructs. It starts to get a little bit easier when we, to get our heads around when we remember what Jesus said. When, he, when Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment 
in scripture, Jesus said, it's easy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. On this commandment hangs all the law and the prophets. Everything that's ever been said about following God is, is, is contained within the idea of loving him absolutely and loving our neighbours as we love ourselves. There are some complex ideas in that. Loving God with our whole, whole being, that seems um, amazing, outlandish, wonderful, our whole being, how is that possible? Loving our neighbour as ourselves? Wait a minute. Let me think a little bit. How much do I love myself? If I love myself too much, then I'm filled with pride. And so do I just want to love my neighbour a little bit? But the kind of love that I'm supposed to have for my neighbour is supposed to reflect the love that I have for God and the love that I have for myself. And so we start, to, we start to be drawn into this space that John is, uh, is talking about where the grandeur and wonder of what it is to follow Jesus is being unpacked for us in these few verses. It becomes a little bit clearer when we um, flip over into uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. Uh, uh, sorry, chapter 2 and verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. See here we're talking about love again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. So John is capturing the significance of what he's talking about and being free from sin, walking in this world like Jesus by using this idea of love to point us in the direction of what is required of us. When he says, do not love the world, it begins to reveal to us the idea that is fundamental to understanding this entire book. To love the world he explains, is that to love or to love anything. Um, he who loves the world, the, uh, loves the, Father, the love of the Father is not him for everything in the world. The craving, so to love the world is the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. This is the love of the world. And if you live this way, then the love of the Father is not in you. So let's break this down a little bit, or let's, let's try and unpack this a little bit. When we see words like this, the love of the world, cravings, sinful man, lust of the eyes, boasting, we tend to, we tend to move this into the space of the, of the big sins. So when we talk about lust, perhaps we're talking about lust for finances or lust for power or sexual lust, but these driving lusts that are within us. And let me suggest that those most certainly are included in what John is speaking about. But when he says that, talks about it in terms of the love for the world, this is what he is saying. That because we are born into this world, 
without a relationship with the Father, our sense of who we are is distorted and it is uncertain. And so as we journey through life, we are trying to find things that will tell us who we are, try and find things that will tell us that we are valuable. We are on a desperate search to find that which will cause us to feel valuable. Do you want to know why? Because you and I interpret feeling valuable with feeling loved. We put those two ideas together and they're never separated. For example, if you were to say to someone that you love deeply, I love you, but I think that you're a waste of time and space, how deeply do you think they will experience the love that you have for them? Not very deeply at all. They'll begin to doubt it significantly, right? So if we're trying to communicate to somebody that we love them, we do things for them. We give them things. We say things to them that do what? Tell them how valuable they are. I went through a period of my life, and I'm not bragging, but I think I could, where every day for a year, I bought my wife a rose. Isn't that special? I did that every day for a, for a whole year. Never done it since, so maybe I lost whatever points I, I got. But, for, but for in this year, I thought to myself, I want to tell her how valuable she is to me. So every day for a year, I bought her a flower. I bought her a rose. And um, I don't know whether they were good roses. I don't know whether I did, I did well in that situation. But I know my wife got the message. Every day as I drove home from the office, I'd stop at a certain store, get a flower, and I would take it to her. My whole intent for doing that that year was to tell her how valuable she was to me. And she got it. Those roses weren't, didn't cost very much at all. In fact, probably the, the petrol and the effort cost more than the flower. But it said something to her about her value to me. And when I said to her, I love you in the context of that year, she was easily able to believe me and she accepted that. And, that's, and that is the way that love works. If I, if I abuse somebody or reject somebody or turn my back on somebody or um, mock somebody, or laugh at somebody, or call somebody names, they will never see that I love them. It's one of the great challenges for the church when we live in the space of telling people what, how horrible they are, and how horrible their life is, and then we say, we love you. They don't believe it. Because whenever you want to tell somebody you love them, you tell them how valuable you are. And so if we want to reach the world in which we live, we really have to start thinking in terms of telling the world how, much, how valuable they are in the eyes of God. And so when, we, when John writes about loving this world, he is talking about having a devotion, a preoccupation, a focus on on fixing the brokenness of our lives ourselves, trying to find ways that make us feel valuable, 
getting the scooter with the pneumatic tyres, getting the dragster bike, getting the 10-speed road bike. These, in my mind, were, all, were actually all specifically ways that I thought I would feel valuable. By the time I was in my later teen, teen years, it had become a car. I was absolutely certain that if I could get a car, I would feel valuable. And I remember very, very clearly thinking the reason that I would feel valuable is that when I drove to youth group and I turned up at youth group, people would know that I was there because they would see my car. And no longer would I just slip in the back and nobody ever notice me. They would have to know I'm there because they'd see my car. And do you see how much that was wrapped up in the idea of being accepted and being valued and, being, uh, and, and, having, um, and having identity? Because I thought that if people saw my car, they would know that I was there because prior to that time, I had presumed that nobody knew I was there. Neither of those things were true. Without the car, people knew me, they, they cared about me, they liked me, some even loved me. With the car made no difference. And what's more, when I got the car, it made no difference to how I felt about myself. I didn't feel any more accepted, any more loved, any more valued because I had the car. It was a nice car, I liked the car. I was very proud of my car. But it actually didn't change anything in me. Because my identity was locked into this place where I felt like I had to meet my own, love, my own need to be valued and loved. So when John talks about love for the world, that's the issue he's speaking to. And yes, lusts include all of those big things because that's exactly what they are about. But lust also includes just focusing on trying to meet my own need. Try, being driven by a deep desire to meet my own needs, to be loved and valued. And then, it, and then he says, uh, just in case we didn't get the point, he says it very, very clearly because he says this, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the, from the world. So he even puts in this idea of the, so he talks about lusts, and then he he immediately connects that with the idea of the person boasting. Well, why do people boast? Because be, people want boast because they want to seem like they're impressive, seem like they have valuable things, seem like they are good at something, seem like they are, um, they are acceptable. Why? So that they will feel valuable, and when they feel valuable, they'll feel loved. So there's no doubt what John's talking about here. The lust for the world is that deep down craving that flows from our own sense of inadequacy, our own brokenness, our own loss our own emptiness and demands to be satisfied and it's a craving because it doesn't matter how much you feed it it's going to want more because it is an identity built in brokenness and so when Paul, uh, Paul when John says um, that when we're in the when we are in the light uh, we obey the commands of Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your whole soul, mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. He is talking about a life overwhelmed by love. 
that there is this idea that we can be overwhelmed by love, that we can be filled with love, that we can live in love, that we can live free into the world in love and our identity can be transformed from one of brokenness and cravings and need to one of wholeness and completeness and love. In our Wesleyan holiness tradition, we have called that reality sanctification and the experience of coming to that place in our lives where we abandon all of our cravings um, and we give them over to God and we surrender to him all the things that we use to define us and we take upon his life and his reality to define us. We have theologically labeled that entire sanctification and it's not a myth. It's not a story, it is this fantastic reality that in this world we can be like Jesus. How can we be like Jesus? Our life can be filled with love. And that's all that we're talking about, having a heart filled with love that by inference means that our identity is in Christ, not in our own brokenness and our need. And this is such a wonderful and compelling truth that as the people of God get before God and bow down before Him and open their hearts and live in brokenness, or live out of their brokenness into love, that He cleanses the heart, He purifies us by faith and He empowers us to, to live a life of love by filling our hearts with love and transforming our identity. And this we find in the end of the second chapter. And he says, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. And now, dear children, do you hear that? Now, dear children, this is who we are. We are the children of God. And now, dear children, this is your identity. It's not an identity of brokenness. It's not an identity needing scooters and push bikes and motor cars. It is an identity that is filled to overflowing with the love of God and the satisfaction that comes from knowing that I am his, not mine. You know, I am not, I, my identity is not in my brokenness, it is in the love of God. And when he appears, I have, an, I have a confidence. There's no shame in me at his appearing. There's no hiding in me. There is no, there is no turning away because I know that I'm inadequate. When he appears, his children will look up to him and stare him in the face. Do you know, it's not an uncommon thing. I've, I've been in, in settings quite often where you will, you will get a group of Christians together and as we journey through concepts um, around this space, we will ask them to imagine they're sitting in a room and Jesus comes walking into their room and comes and meets them. And you ask them the question, just imagine him being there. What are you doing? And many people that have been Christians for all their life will say in their imagination, as Jesus comes into the room, 
they turn their heads away. Why? Because I'm not adequate. I'm not good enough to look into the face of Jesus. That's shame. I'm not good enough to look into the face of Jesus. But what John says is that when he appears, I have utter confidence. I stand before him in open arms and I look him in the face. Why? Because he's looking at me and he's telling me who I am. I am his. I am a child of God. I have nothing to worry about. His love fills my heart and fills my life and there's no shame there. And that we know that he is righteous and we know that everyone that does what is right is born of him. Everyone that does what is right is born of him. What is right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbour as yourself. In this world, we can be like Jesus. In this world, we will walk like him. Not every Christian on this planet believes that. In fact, most, more Christians don't believe that than do believe that. More Christians believe that we're just broken until, we, until the day we die. And then when we get to glory, he'll make us like him. But we are of a theological tradition that owns these words. We make these words ours. People say, well, you can't be perfect all the time. And our response is, absolutely. I'm not, it's, not about, it's not about my ability. It's about the fact that God fills my heart. And if we are going to be serious about spiritual deepening, we have to be serious about the reality that in this world, we are like him. It's John's call to you and I tonight. Across the eons echoes the call of John. In this world, you are like him. Let's stand together and pray. Lord Jesus, if we're honest this evening, we will say in the depth of our being, we want to know your love. We want to know the fullness of your presence in our life. If we're honest this evening, we, we don't like feeling alone, empty, inadequate, insufficient, not good enough, insignificant, abandoned, hopeless. We hate that. But we all know what that feels from time to time. Lord Jesus, the extent that those thoughts rob us of the joy of being your people, we would say very deliberately that over this weekend, we choose to find a new expression of your love for us. We choose to find a new way of experiencing who you are. We invite you right now to speak to our hearts, to journey with us throughout the rest of this weekend, calling us to that place in this world. We are like him. And Lord Jesus, those that are willing right now will make you this promise. We will stand in your presence all this weekend and we will pray with open hearts that will say, come and fill me with your love. 
Fill my church with your love that we might live out the command that we love one another. Would you set this weekend apart? Would you call us into that place where we see nothing but you, not our failings, not our fears, not our pasts, not our hopes and dreams when they are for things of this world. But we long for you and we're setting this weekend apart that we might know you. We give you this time for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to learn more about the college, please check us out online at ntc.edu.au and you can follow us on Facebook. We hope to see you again in a future episode.